Horican Baptist Church exists to see God glorified, the church edified, and our community served by declaring and displaying the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to John chapter 2, verse 13. This book begins with some incredible claims about Jesus, and even at the end of chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples have claimed some amazing things. Jesus said that he was the promised Son of Man from Daniel 7, who's going to be worshipped and served by all nations. That's an insane thing to claim, but then last week we studied Jesus' first sign where he turned water to wine, And last week we saw Jesus put his money where his mouth is. And he confirmed that he is who he says he is. John wrote this book so that we may believe. And last week he gave us a story that led the disciples to have greater confidence in the claims of Christ. Now John wants to build on that momentum. And he wants to tell us another story where the disciples grew in their faith. And this time it's not because of a sign Jesus did. Because of something he said. So let's pray And we're going to dive in. Dear Father, help us to see your Son for who he truly is. Save us from the spirit of the leaders of Israel who were more concerned with how the temple was cleansed rather than whether it was a holy place to begin with. Your disciples did not understand Jesus' words when they first heard them, but send your Spirit that we may understand this text this morning. We can understand nothing without you. And so we cast ourselves at your feet today and beg for your help. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When Pew Research asked Americans, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Jesus? 90% of respondents said favorable. In fact, the only other historical figure to rank higher was Abraham Lincoln with 91%. The study went on. As impressive as Jesus and Lincoln's numbers are, the person Americans expressed the highest opinion of in our poll is themselves. We asked the question, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of yourself? And 93% gave themselves a positive rating to only 1% with a negative rating. I went on a mission trip to Honduras back in 2013 and I had a great time, but there was a day where we went into a small city and there was a church in the middle of this small city and the doors were wide open. There's nobody in the church. So we walked around like a bunch of white tourists in Honduras And when we walked in, there was something that struck me about the church. Above the altar at the front of the church, there was this huge picture of Jesus, but he looked nothing like the Jesus that I was used to. The picture was obviously supposed to be Jesus on the cross, but he looked fully Honduran. And I remember being in this small town, in this small church in Honduras, and I was angry. These people had made an image of Jesus, but they made them... They made Jesus to look just like them. They had made an image of Jesus in their own image. And my righteous anger didn't last long as I returned home only to be confronted by pictures of white Jesus after white Jesus who looked just like me. I grew up in a tradition where these images were incredibly common and I had never questioned it. I think that's one of the reasons God tells us not to make graven images because we end up with a picture that looks more like the painter than God. But pictures of Jesus are just the beginning. I I shared uh, this quote the first time that I preached at this church. But I'm going to share it again. Timothy Keller, who is a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, once said, If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. 
I think the reason Jesus has such a high approval rating in America is because we all pick and choose parts of Jesus we like and ignore the parts that we don't. And we get a Jesus who is largely, largely made in our own image. Largely, this looks like a Jesus who is all love and kindness and no wrath. In America, we have a Jesus who would never get mad, who would never offend anybody, who would never judge anybody. But then we get to John 2, and the Jesus we've created in our own minds begins to fall apart. So let me ask, what does your Jesus look like? Does your Jesus ever disagree with you? Would your Jesus ever get mad and flip tables in the temple? Not that there is more than one Jesus, but if we're honest with ourselves, then most of us have been so influenced by the Christianity and the culture around us that we, rather than, than what the Bible actually says about Jesus. We've painted this picture of Jesus in our society as being very gentle and sweet, and, and he is gentle and sweet, but there's another side to him. He is holy and he does not tolerate sin. He gets angry and he is righteous. And one day he's going to come back to judge the world in righteousness. Let me ask something I asked last week. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever wonder if Christianity is true? You've heard the sign that Jesus performed, but do you still feel weak in your faith and wandering? Well, John wrote this primarily so that we might believe in the true Jesus. John wants you to walk away loving and trusting Jesus more than when you first sat down. And in our passage today, we're going to see the biblical Jesus. And John's going to give us more reasons for us to put our faith and trust in him. Do you want to know the real Jesus of the Bible? Do you want to grow in your faith? He's the only one that can do that. The real Jesus is the only one that can save you, not some imaginary made-up friend. And in this passage, Jesus reveals himself to us. My prayer this morning is that you'd be able to lay aside your preconceived notions about Jesus and believe in the biblical Jesus. Because in John 2, we're going to find the two sides of Jesus. We're going to find that Jesus is a righteous judge in verses 13 through 17. And then we're going to find that Jesus is a loving Savior in verses 18 through 22. But first, let's look at the first side of Jesus, the side often ignores. Jesus is a righteous judge. Look with me to verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The Passover was a huge event for the nation of Israel. It was a cultural climax of the people. It was a festival meant to remember how God would lead the Israelites out of Egypt and led them out of slavery. And every Israelite was supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Even if you were in Italy or Egypt or other countries, you're supposed to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The temple was central to the life and culture of Israel because that's where the presence of God was. As we've been studying in our Old Testament survey, the temple was central to the theology of the Israelites. Most people did not live the, the temple. So on these special occasions, when you go, you would, you would travel to the temple. And at the temple, you would pray and you would ask for forgiveness and you would offer sacrifices. It was a solemn place of worship. Some of you could, could even feel that as we were apart for so long for COVID and we were stuck in our own homes. And imagine the anticipation or remember the anticipation of when you came back to church and you were able to worship with God's people. This is the feeling of anticipation that the people had on Passover. 
Most people, like I said, would come from far away and they would buy the animals needed for the sacrifices in the city rather than dragging your ox or your lamb across the desert. People also needed to pay, uh, to pay a tax to go into the temple that would help the Levites. It would be like a tithe to, to support the people running the, the temple. They had different coins in this time, which weighed different amounts. Some were gold, some copper, some silver. But there was an official coin of the Roman Empire, which was the only coin accepted by the temple. It was common to go and exchange your coins once you got into Jerusalem. So historically, these kinds of things were handled outside of the city walls. But it seems as time went on, these traders got closer and closer and closer until they're within the courts of the temple. All this to say is that none of these things were sin. It wasn't that that what they were doing was wrong. It was where they were doing it. It was the location. The outer court of the temple was supposed to be a place for prayer and contemplation. It was supposed to be a quiet place of reflection. But instead, imagine the sounds and the smell of livestock. And imagine the sounds of men bargaining and trading and yelling at one another. That's not the scene that it should be. But look back at verse 15 and see what happens. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is probably the clearest passage in the Gospels where Jesus shows us his anger. He's upset that these people are turning the sacred temple into a place of commerce, into a place of business. There's probably rope laying around to tie up the animals, so Jesus takes this rope. He takes the time to fashion a whip, and then he starts cracking the whip and ordering that people leave. Now, it's not 100% clear if Jesus uses the whips solely on the animals, but also on the people, but either is possible. And it's clear that, that he doesn't just act on the animal, but he also flips the tables and scatters the coins on the ground. Is this the same Jesus that said to love your neighbor? Is this the same Jesus that told us to forgive our enemies and to turn the other cheek? If Jesus did this today, his approval rating would plummet. So what do we do with this Jesus? Why is he so angry? I'm going to borrow an analogy from a friend of mine. I heard him preach John 2 in Florida, and I couldn't think of a better analogy, so let me use his. Imagine it's Father's Day, and you're planning something special for your dad. When he's out of the house, you go to his house, and you start setting up a surprise celebration for your dad. You set up a, a banner that says, Happy Father's Day. I love you, Dad. You put balloons around the mailbox. You grill a bunch of steaks just the way he likes them. And you have this delicious cake ready. And then you get him a special present that you took the time to think about. And you wrapped it and you set it on the table. And imagine when you're done setting up, you leave to run a few errands. And then you come back to make sure everything's in order. But when you get there, the front door is ajar. You go inside and you look and the steaks are eaten up. There's a big chunk of cake missing. And the only thing left of your gift is the wrapping paper. Your gift is gone. You're upset at this point. But then you hear something in the other room, so you turn to see that there are intruders in your father's house. They're eating his cake. They got the gift that you got him in their hands, and they seem surprised by your presence, and they say, we're here for the celebration. What do you do? You start flipping over tables, and you chase them out with a whip, right? That's what you do. This is your father's house. This is your father's celebration. They're disrespecting his house and his celebration. These people don't love your father. They don't love your dad. 
They're just here for themselves. Now the question is no longer how could Jesus get angry, but how could he not? But isn't being angry a sin? Well, no, actually it's not for two reasons. First, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day and God is perfect. Therefore, anger is not sin. But you may say, well, that's God. That's not us. He has a right to be angry and you're right. But consider this in both the book of Psalms and in the book of Ephesians, it says, be angry and do not sin, separating the two. If you lose control and you see red and you lose your temper, there's a lot of sin in there. But remember, Jesus did not lash out. He didn't lose his temper. He stopped, does some macrame with the whip, and then starts whipping and shouting, all under his control. He was not a loose cannon. He was angry, but he never lost control, and he never sinned. His anger was utterly righteous. If Jesus was out of control and had started a riot, then the Roman police would have come down and shut that down real quick, and they probably would have killed him in the process for starting a riot. But what's amazing here is that there's no recorded resistance, nor here or or in any other gospel account. Even though this isn't one of the seven signs John talks about, theologians often call this a miracle because Jesus, with no army, with no backup, with no support, is able to drive the money changers and the traitors out and is not arrested or resisted at all. Head down to Jerusalem today and start whipping people around and see how long that lasts. Won't last long. How can Jesus get away with this? And you can't? Because it's his father's house. Cornelius Van Dyke, who was an American missionary and translator of the Bible, uh, he translated the Bible into Arabic. He said on this passage, The act of Christ is not to be imitated because he did it as the Lord of the temple because he's the only son. The only whip we may use is our tongue. So it's his job to cleanse the temple because he is a king. In Israel, the king wasn't just their leader. He was also the supreme court. He was the final stop who made judgments and decisions and would sentence people to life or death. So here Jesus is executing justice as a king and as a judge. Why? Because Jesus is a righteous judge. I think this is where we need to stop and think and examine our own motives. This church is not a temple in any way. But it is a holy place where we come to pray, confess our sins, sing praises to God, hear the word of God preached. In this building, when we gather as the body of Christ, Jesus is specially present in a way in which he's not when we are separated as individuals. So when you come to worship, why do you come? Do you come because your spouse makes you or because a parent or grandparent makes you? Do you come because that's what you've always done? Why are you here? What's your motive? Do you come with a heart hungry for Jesus and for his word? Or are you just here for yourself because it's a good part of your Sunday that you like to do? And I'm glad everyone is here. Like, don't hear this and say, okay, I'm never coming back. I want you here. But it's worth to stop and examine our motives every once in a while. Otherwise, we may be thrown from the presence of God by Christ the righteous judge. So let's move on and see what happens in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now it's not clear if John is talking about in the moment they remembered or after the resurrection, but at some point they put two and two together and realized that Jesus was doing and why he was doing it. 
Psalm 69 says that David was suffering because zeal for God's house will consume him. It's not clear why, but David was so dedicated to God's house that people despised him for it. David was a man after God's own heart, and at one point he wanted to build God a temple, but the Lord tells David not to do it. Instead, he tells David, you're going to have a son, and he's going to come after you, and he's going to build a temple, and this son will sit on your throne, and he's going to reign forever and ever. And eventually Solomon becomes king, and he looks like this is going to be the guy, this is going to be the son, and he builds this incredible temple, and it would seem like this was the promised son of David. But what happened to Solomon? Near the end of his life, he becomes wicked and more wicked and takes on more wives and more concubines, and he dies. He doesn't reign forever on the throne. And then you have to ask, well, what happens to his temple? It lasts a couple hundred years, but eventually it's destroyed. Does this mean that God broke his promise with David? Absolutely not. In this verse, the disciples figure out what's going on as they identify Jesus as the promised son of David who will reign on the throne. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel and he's a righteous judge. At this Passover feast, he's asserting his authority and the disciples recognize it. You may be wondering, where's the promised temple then? We have the promised son, where's the temple? But we'll get to that in the next point. Before we go into that, we have to recognize Jesus' role as a righteous judge. He is holy and he hates sin. That's why in Revelation it says that the people are going to cry out and say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back, his anger will be fierce. His wrath will be unbearable. His rulings will be final. And his justice will be absolute. Why? Because Jesus is the holy God of the universe. He is a good and righteous judge. And he will execute justice. This is terrifying news for us because we have all fallen short. We failed to treat God as holy. We failed to worship him like we should. We break his Sabbath day and we skip church because it's not important to us. We love the things of this world rather than loving him as we should rightly. We take his name in vain and we use God and Jesus' names as filthy words to be despised rather than treating them as holy. If Jesus judges us in his righteousness and in our sinfulness, all of us will deserve nothing but the wrath of a righteous judge. But praise Jesus that he is not only a righteous judge. Jesus is the Lion of Judah who will come back to judge the living and the dead. But don't forget, he's also the Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. In this passage, we see both sides of Jesus. He is a righteous judge, but Jesus is also a loving Savior. Look with me to verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? These aren't random Jews. They're probably the temple leaders, and they've come to question Jesus, just like they questioned John the Baptist in chapter 1. Why do they ask for a sign? Because they know their Bibles. They know that it wasn't just Psalm 69, but it was also the prophet Zechariah who wrote that a day would come where there would no longer be merchants in the house of the Lord. The prophet Malachi preached that the Lord was going to come suddenly to his temple to purify it. They know there's a possibility that Jesus is the Messiah by acting in this way, so they ask him for a sign. You see the difference between how these leaders respond to Jesus versus the disciples, though? His disciples, one by one, came to Jesus in simple faith. 
Here, Jesus somehow single-handedly drives out the merchants of the temple, which is more evidence than the most of the early disciples had when they followed Jesus. And he does it confidently, as you would expect the promised Messiah to do, and the Pharisees are upset. They're asking for a sign. But I think this is what they're also asking. Who do you think you are? What right do you have? Just like when, with John the Baptist. Either they didn't hear or more likely they didn't understand when Jesus said that this was his father's house. They're asking, what gives you the right to do these things? I think this line of questioning reveals what they really cared about. They care more about how the temple was cleansed rather than whether or not the temple was holy to begin with. Whose job was it to stop this kind of stuff? It was their job. It was the Levite's job. It was the leader's job. The very people who are questioning Jesus. And these leaders are more concerned with the process than the outcome. They care more about the traditions of man than what is biblical, what is right. It's important for us to always be asking for anything that we do in church. Is this biblical rather than how did we do it in the past? But these leaders don't care much for what's biblical. So look what Jesus responds with in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus does not perform a sign for them. He gives them a challenge. He tells them, Destroy this temple and I'll resurrect it. They don't like this at all, and they just think he's being absurd. This is something we see again and again and again in the book of John, where Jesus says something and he's speaking spiritually, and his listeners think that he's speaking about earthly things. And they mistake what he's saying. Like in John 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? He's thinking earthly rather than spiritually. John is showing us that Jesus' audience is full of people who physically hear, but are spiritually deaf. But why doesn't Jesus just perform a sign for them? Doesn't he want them to believe? Well, I think because at the end of this chapter, John explains that Jesus knows what is in the hearts of men. John explains that Jesus knows that these men only want a sign because they don't care about whether or not he is the Messiah. They're only upset about the process. He refuses to perform on command for those who don't really want to know whether he's the Messiah. But even though he doesn't perform a sign, he does promise them one, even if they don't realize it at the time. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why does Jesus use this analogy of the temple instead of of Jesus just telling them, hey, you're going to kill me and I'm going to be raised from the dead? Why doesn't he speak clearly about these things? I think part of it is because his hour had not come yet, like we talked about last week. It wasn't time for him to die. And so he speaks in parables. He speaks in some ways riddles and analogies to the Jewish leaders. If he came out now and told them who he was and what he was going to do, they probably would have stoned him on the spot. But I also think that John includes this because he's comparing the old tabernacle of Moses to the new tabernacle of Jesus. Throughout John's gospel, we see John comparing Moses with Jesus over and over again. Back in chapter 1, John wrote that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Last week at the wedding, we saw six stone water jars used for Jewish rites of purification. But what does Jesus do with this ceremonial water? He makes it into something new. He turns the water to wine. And then at the Last Supper, he points to that wine and says, this is the new covenant in his blood. And so now we get a story 
about the temple in the Old Testament, and then Jesus presents himself as the new temple. In the Old Testament, there were many prophecies about the coming Messiah, but God also gave Israel pictures, events, people, and institutions which all look forward to the coming of the Messiah. One of these institutions was the temple. In the garden, man walked with God and lived in his presence, but after the garden, man couldn't meet with God. The relationship was broken. Man was exiled. Fast forward a few thousand years and God has just brought the Israelites out of Egypt and God tells them to build a tent and to put a tabernacle in it where his presence was going to be. And it was in that tent where man would meet with God and offer sacrifices for his sins. But the problem was with this tent and this tabernacle is that they were only symbols of something greater to come. We've already talked about God's promise to David that Jesus is the son of David who sits on the throne and rules forever. But where is his promised temple? Remember back in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus steps on the scene and he is our new temple. He is the place where we meet with God and have our sins forgiven. But he's not just the tabernacle, he is also the sacrifice. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know why we don't have to sacrifice bulls and sheeps and get our clothes bloody every Sunday? Because Jesus is our temple. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the final sacrifice. He is the greatest priest and the greatest king. He is the one mediator between God and man. Even though Jesus is a righteous judge, he satisfies his own wrath through his sacrifice so that we can say without contradiction that Jesus is also a loving Savior. Amen, somebody. These are the two sides of Jesus. I feel so bad for churches who downplay the wrath of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus and all they want to talk about is the love of Jesus because that's a shallow love. If God is truly holy and truly hates sin and is going to judge and destroy sin, that makes the cross and the love of Christ so much incredibly deeper. If he doesn't care about sin, the cross is a small thing. But if he cares about sin and he executes justice, then the love of Christ is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Amen? Amen. That's why we have to take Jesus, both his sides, not just one. Then see the disciples' reaction in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here the disciples are clueless, but after the resurrection they remember. They they think back to what Jesus has said and it clicks. In this passage, the disciples are as blind as the Pharisees. But what happens that opens their eyes? In John 14, we're going to see that the Spirit does not just open our eyes... But the Spirit, He also reminds the believer of spiritual truth. It's not clear how long it was between when the disciples first heard this and Jesus' resurrection. But notice that Jesus' words act like a seed that is planted in the ground. A seed that was planted and stayed in the ground dormant for potentially years until one day it grew. When we share our faith with others, there are times when you will share the gospel and it will seem as if there are no effects. But the seed of the gospel that was planted could bear fruits many years later when the Holy Spirit reminds the person of the truths that you shared. 
I mean, think about the power of God and evangelism and that there was one young man who was handed a gospel tract, went home to his college dorm, threw it into the trash, and his roommate picked it up and read that gospel tract and was converted. His, his name is Phil Johnson. He's serving with John MacArthur out in California. He's been serving faithfully for years and years, and that's his story is that the gospel may take a long time either to be remembered or to be presented, but you can never underestimate God's word and how it will return one day. Bishop J.C. Ryle said on this passage, There is often a resurrection of sermons and texts and instruction after an interval of many years. The good seed sometimes springs up after he that sowed it has been long dead and gone. Let preachers go on preaching, and teachers go on teaching, and parents go on training up children in the way that they should go. Let them sow the good seed of Bible truth and faith and patience. Their labor is not in vain in the Lord. Their words are remembered far more than they think, and yet will spring up after many days. End quote. This is why we tell others about the gospel of Jesus. Share lovingly, share often, share repeatedly. You never know when God is going to use a seed that was planted. But notice in verse 22 what they believed. They believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Wait, didn't they already believe in him? Weren't they already following him? Didn't we even see last week that they believed in him at the wedding of Cana? Yes, yes, and yes. But like I said last week, even though his disciples had already begun following and believing the scriptures and the word Jesus had spoken, They deepened their faith. They strengthened their confidence. They assured them that Jesus was who he said he was. My prayer this morning was that you would be able to lay aside your preconceived notions about Jesus and believe in the biblical Jesus. Because in John 2, verses 13 through 22, we found the two sides of Jesus. We found that Jesus is a righteous judge, but he's also a loving savior. So let me ask, what is your Jesus like? How do you know that he's like that? Is it something you've been taught or is the the Jesus you believe in just one that you have made up? Does your Jesus ever disagree with you? If Jesus never disagrees with any of the way that you live your life or the things that you think, that's a good sign that that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Then let me ask the Christians who who have doubts and who wonder, do you hear the words of Jesus? Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. What are you going to do with those words? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you this morning. Two ways in which we can apply this text to our lives and faithfully live in light of this story. The first pastoral charge. First pastoral charge. Flee the wrath of the Lamb by the blood of the Lamb. Flee the wrath of the Lamb by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is a loving Savior, but he's also a righteous judge. There's a picture in our culture that's painting of Jesus that, that he's soft and that he's offended and he's just yearning for you and he longs for you and he wouldn't do anything to ever offend or upset you. That's not a Jesus who's worthy of our worship. That's not the biblical image of Jesus. Listen to the biblical image of who Jesus is, both sides. Listen to Revelation 14. It, it says that, that the people in hell will be tormented, tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. Hell is a place where Christ pours out his wrath. The wrath of the Lamb is terrible. But listen, there is a way to be saved. 
In your sins, you cannot enter into the presence of holy God without being destroyed and without the wrath of God coming upon you. But there is a way to be washed. And if you hear anything this morning, hear this. Christ has made a way for sinners to be made right. Christ has made a way for us to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. He was crushed and crucified 2,000 years ago as our substitute, as our Lamb, as our sacrifice. And then He rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And if you turn from your pride and trust in His sacrifice, He will forgive you. So humble yourself and flee from the wrath of the Lamb and the blood of the Lamb. Second pastoral charge. Grow your faith by looking to Jesus. Grow your faith by looking to Jesus. If you remember this, this is the same pastoral charge that that I used last week because I think that's John's intention in this passage as well. The difference is last week we looked to Jesus by seeing his glory when he showed his signs. Today the focus is not on Jesus' signs, but on the prophecies of the Old Testament and the promises of Jesus. I'll tell you, as a new believer, I came to the faith trusting what Jesus did on the cross, but I had no trust in the Bible. I knew that God was real and I was trusting in Jesus, but I could not wrap my head around the Bible because men are sinful. The Bible's supposed to be perfect. How could sinful people write a perfect book? So I did not trust my Bible until I came across the prophecies of the Bible. If you read passages like Isaiah 53 that talk about the suffering servant who is to come. It was written 800 years before Christ came. It perfectly describes Jesus' death. Psalm 22 is the same way and it was written a thousand years before Jesus came. There's prophecy that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he would live in Egypt, that that he would be raised as a son of David. I mean, prophecy after prophecy of the Bible over and over again, in my mind, that grew my faith until I could lift up the Bible and say, this is the word of God and I trust it. Those prophecies were given to us to help us believe. The more and more I studied the prophecies of the Bible, the more and more I was convinced that God, by the Spirit, used sinful men to write a perfect book. Why does Jesus predict his death and resurrection over and over and over again in the Gospels? So that our faith can deepen when it happens. Why does God give us prophecy after prophecy of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament? So that when he comes, we could believe and deepen our faith. Every time that a prophecy occurs in the Bible, and you, or you see one of those pictures of God in the Old Testament that, that points to the Messiah, it should lead you to have more faith and greater confidence and a fuller assurance that Jesus is both the righteous judge and the saving, loving Savior. These prophecies are more than just proofs that Christianity is true, but also beautiful reminders to us of what Christ has done. Robert Murray McShane, the the Puritan, famously said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And how I know many depressed Christians who spend all day long in self-examination. And while it's healthy from time to time to examine yourself, the solution for your pain and your doubts and your sin is not inside of you, but in what Christ did for you on the cross. So deepen your faith by looking to Jesus. Come back again and again and again to the Bible and you will see that his word is true. The more you look to the scriptures and the word that Jesus spoke, the deeper your faith will become.
Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com. Thank you.